Hello, everybody. It's Mark Thurman, and I'm doing my IoT Innovators podcast again. And we've got a, a, a very interesting guest that we'll, uh, we'll have him introduce himself in a second. But the reference point just for those listening was that uh, he and I met as part of a Amazon Web Services IoT panel, uh, I, I want to say almost a month ago or three weeks ago, in San Francisco. And the topic that we were uh, going through was smart home. But let me pause. And Tolga, could you introduce yourself? Who are you? What do you do? And what company do you work for? And what do they do? Sure, yeah. My name is Tolga Tarhan. I'm the CTO of Onica. We're an uh, Amazon Web Services systems integrator um, in a variety of spaces, but for this conversation, we are uh, heavily involved in building IoT solutions around uh, AWS. Cool, and Onica is O-N-I-C-A, just for those uh, following along at home. Now, you guys are out of Orange County, aren't you? Actually, yeah, L.A., Orange County, and Dallas, um, we have significant presences, and then we actually have resources all throughout the country. Okay. Uh, about how big are you guys, just, you know, in terms of uh, people or, you know, whatever number you, you care to give me? Yeah, about 150 people today, wow. growing very rapidly. Wow. And is the primary uh, aspect of what Annika does all around Amazon, or is it... Uh, I, I saw you have Microsoft on AWS. What, what, are your, 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 what are the focus areas? Yeah, so we're definitely we're an all-in on AWS um, play, and um, we, within that context, we do a lot. So we do migrations to AWS. We do big data, AI, and ML projects in AWS. We do sort of DevOps, continuous integration, and delivery work. And then we do application development. And in that context, we build serverless, uh, cloud-native applications that were not just incidentally running in the cloud, but that were designed from the ground up for the cloud. And as part of that practice area, we do um, IoT, both hardware, firmware, and, uh, and software engineering. Yeah, I noticed the hardware. We'll come back to that. I thought that was interesting because uh, I know a lot of folks have been scratching at having essentially their own dev kit. Uh, in fact, let's, let's just jump there now. You had something on, on the site called IoTanium. Um, is that something that's, that's, that's your IP, or, or did you guys just open up the Arrow catalog and pick <laughs> page 27, or, or what is that thing? Yeah, actually, this is very timely. So we, re we launched IoTanium publicly earlier this week, and uh, IoTanium is, is the branded name of our entire IoT portfolio now, but the okay. hardware piece that you're, you're talking about is actually our own um, development board. And the, the value in having a board that we've built and designed ourselves is that we can really rapidly use that to build POCs for customers, which is where almost every project starts. But we can also take that same design and, and adapt it to a production solution. So by owning the design and IP, it's very easy for us to modify that design for a customer that's ready to move on from a POC into a production workload. And in most cases, whatever firmware we built for the POC just keeps working on the, on the redesigned board. So let, let's actually, let's, I'm glad it was timely. I had no idea. But um, uh, yeah, the, first of all, roughly how much is it? Under 100 over 100 over Yeah, 500? so the, 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 yeah, it's under $100. The, the, the dev okay. boards, um, we, don't, we don't actually sell, hold these things out and sell them publicly. What we do is use them in our POC projects. So when a customer okay. engages us for a POC, we'll use these boards to build their POC and then, again, hopefully also use the design for their production uh, launch as well. 
So they might bake it in. So they may come back to you and say, okay, this was very successful. Our 10,000 widgets worked the way we were supposed to. They were supposed to. We'd like to you know, launch this globally. And, and then would they license the design or just license elements? Or would you say, look, you know, here's the chipset vendor. Here's the motor manufacturer. You know, what, what, yeah. What's sort of the conversation after a, success, a, a, a successful POC? Yeah, so while during the POC, we pretty much expect to use the boards as is, and then we're going to have inventories of these boards to use for the POC phase, for the production launch of a product, we would intend to license the design to our customer. So okay. we would modify the design to meet exactly their need and probably remove components because the POC board is kind of a kitchen sink, right? Mm -hmm. um, so we take, out, we take out things that you don't need, we shape it in the form factor you need it to be in, and our... Um, our goal is to help customers mature the design and do the engineering work to lead them to a successful production product. So give me an example of a customer type uh, that, would, uh, that you would pursue with this. You know, a consumer company, a trucking company, uh, you know. Yeah. Just give, see if you can give me a couple of broad, uh, broad brush strokes on that, please. Yeah, so we, uh, we have, this product came to be because we found ourselves doing this already. We found ourselves building the same board over and over as we were engaging with customers. And the interesting part is that it actually um, cross-cuts a lot of industries. So we are working with customers in, for example, the oil and gas business that need IoT devices out at the edge in the oil field. Right? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of use cases from safety to, to engineering that involve... Um, IoT. But on the other hand, the same, the same fundamental design is actually what you would be looking for for a smart office or a smart home product with customers that are building everything from uh, you know, systems that control pools all the way to um, smart office and utilization of space type, uh, type projects. So let's, let's, let's start on the, on the um, oil example because oil and gas is a massive vertical. In this case, would your customer be the operator of the oil platform, or would it be the equipment provider, or both, or somebody completely different? Yeah, we find we find that there's two actual uh, two levels to engage at. So uh, companies that are building products for the oil field are great collaborations because mm -hmm. they're already familiar with manufacturing processes. They're already used to building things, and so if we can design an IoT solution for them, they understand how to take that forward into production very well. But you do get some, some very large um, players in the actual oil field services space, um, both upstream and downstream. Mm -hmm. And in, in, that, in that case, sometimes there isn't a vendor out there building what they want. And so we also find those corporations reaching out and maybe custom building solutions that are, that are just for them. That makes perfect sense, actually. So in terms of uh, – and I, I announced my uh, prejudice at the uh, panel that we were uh, – participating in. So I'm an old telco guy, uh, focused on telco, not old. Um, so I tend to look at, uh, you know, networking and connectivity flavors. Uh, it looked like you were, the, this particular dev kit had uh, some short range stuff and it had Wi-Fi. Will it also support 3G, 4G, uh, NB-IoT, CAD-M, CAD-M1, any of those things? Yep. There is an, there is an LTE uh, an LTE modem on there, and okay. we have vents in our lab that, that are just straight LTE as well as ones that are Cat M. As as you know, um, availability of modems and support from the carriers is still developing in that space. Oh but, come on! Um, actually, <laughs> one of one of the areas that we think 
makes this board the most valuable, actually, is that integrating cell modems onto a board, especially a board you're going to use for a POC, is difficult, and there's a lot of overhead to just getting a cell modem solution working. So by having that pre-integrated, we think that actually accelerates projects quite a bit. So you handle the certs as a result. So in other words, customer, again, successful POC, they're going to go with a, uh, you know LTE solution. They'll, they want you to uh, project manage it or you know, prime it. You'll then say, no problem, let me have the certs done for you, or is it up to the customer? Yeah, no, we will support uh, as far into that production process as, as the customer wants. So um, design, you know, design for manufacturing is almost a part of every project, and then how much further we go depends on kind of who the customer is. If they're already building a device, uh, they may very well just take the rest because this is just one part of a larger device. But if you're looking at a company who's, um, who's not a device manufacturer, then often they'll want us to take it all the way. Okay. And I note, uh, again, from crawling through the website on this thing, and then we'll move on to other, other items, uh, you've actually uh, got, I think, what, uh, some Greengrass support built into, the, built into the product, which I think makes you one of the first or one of the earliest boards, that, at least that I've seen, that, that has that overtly available. Yeah, so our board uh, is running uh, Amazon Free RTOS, and okay. it's a low-power low board. Um, it's, it's not meant to be itself the Greengrass core. But if you have a Greengrass core as part of your solution, our, uh, our Iotanium boards can connect to that instead of connecting directly to the cloud. Then you get all the functionality that Greengrass would bring to the table, like edge inference or mm -hmm. local message routing or local lambdas. Yeah, I, I think it's great. By the way, I love the name. As, as cheesy as, as it may sound, but Iotinium is, is a great name, and it's, uh, it kind of caught my eye initially. So let's, let's pop up a level. Um, so the customers that you guys go after are uh, enterprise, uh, they're brands. Uh, you know, I took a look through things. Actually, I saw movietickets.com on there, which was an old customer of mine from 15 years ago, which I won't go through uh, right now, but I helped them do early movie ticket printing from cell phones in a nice. startup I did a long, long time ago, 16 years ago, which is like an eternity. Um, so in terms of the, the customer types that, that you guys are a good fit for, who would that be? Is it always a big brand or is it you know, the, the small fleet up the block? You know, we get, we get all types. So um, we have customers that, uh, that are startups with a really cool idea. And we'll work with those customers to, to start from, from day zero. Then we have large enterprise customers who have real-world mass-scale problems they want to solve today. In both cases, our engagement looks pretty, pretty similar. But um, I, I wouldn't say that company size has been a major selector for our IoT projects. Okay. So are you a better fit on the startup size? Are you a better, better fit for enterprises? Is it you know, six and one half dozen the other? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think, we have, I think we're really good at working with enterprises. So working with startups is, is a lot of fun, and I think a lot, of, a lot of companies can support startups. But working with a large enterprise requires um, a lot more uh, capability, deeper bench, different kinds of skill sets, uh, and I think we can bring all that to the table. So we definitely enjoy um, you know, working with large enterprises. Yeah, it makes perfect sense, and that's where the money is anyway. And speaking of the money, so again, you know, I'm referencing this panel that uh, that we all participated in. Um, my initial prejudice when uh, I took the engagement from Amazon was, uh, you know, one of the the East Coast uh, um, 
uh, event that I moderated was all about enterprise and industrial, and the West Coast was about smart home. Uh, and, you know, my reticence on the smart home topic was there's really not a market there. Um, then I started to do the research. I started to see that, you know, smart home and, and all the various elements have, have kind of come into their own and that, you know, we're trending to roughly half of all IoT revenue according to whatever market research uh, study I cited uh, in my presentation a couple weeks ago. Uh, roughly half of, of, of the IoT revenue is emerging as uh, smart home related. So what, what, given what you see, you're the CTO, you've got a, you know, a lot of eyes and ears out there on the, uh, on the street and you're talking to lots of customers. Where do you see the split uh, in terms of smart home or consumer IoT uh, and uh, how does that uh, how does that compare to what's going on in the enterprise or the industrial market? Yeah, interesting question. So I think you know smart home is a really really interesting market, but it's also very very competitive with who's going to control the center of that universe. And so you've got the major players like Apple, Google, and Amazon with their smart home assistant products trying to be the central hub. You've got um, individual vendors like Lutron with lights or Philips with lights that are trying to make sure they, they play nice with all those ecosystems. Um, I think that there is, I don't feel like we've cracked the smart home as an industry. I don't think we've cracked the smart home uh, piece of this yet. Um, and it's a very different relationship between the customer and the, and the vendor than it is in the industrial commercial space. So in industrial and commercial there are business problems to solve. They're very point solutions, typically. They're not necessarily trying to be part of a big hub um, solution, right? And so the big difference is in smart home, it's all going to be about who controls the, the hub, the central, the interaction point. In commercial I don't, and industrial, I don't see us going that way. Well, I think you know, on, the, on the very last point, I tend to agree with you, by the way, on the very last point, it's because you know, in, in the industrial or enterprise market, each offering is its own uh, silo in many ways. So if you're building and rolling out a global uh, med, you know, connected medical product you know, for sleep apnea or you know, uh, you know, pick, your, pick your disease, pick your, pick your issue, you're, uh, you're really not looking for global domination of, of the rest of the patient's body or the hospital. You're looking for being the very best at that one-point product. But um, I think, and I presented this also at, the, at, our, um, at our gathering a few weeks ago, you know, I, I believe there's this Trojan horse strategy playing out in the home, whether it's the thermostat or, as I noted, the Roomba that uh, maps your, you know, in, uh, the, the inside of your house and also figures out where all of your electronic devices are. Or, uh, you know, our, our fellow panelist was uh, from Vizio, whether it's a TV that's all of a sudden all-knowing, not only what you're doing, what you're watching. So I think there's, you know, multiple things but beyond the home kits and the voice controls and the Google Homes and the Alexas. I think there's mul multiple people trying to get a, get a hub or get a, a Trojan horse in, in the home. And, uh, you know, I'd be curious to see if there's, if there's a winner or multiple winners and, you know, do you end up with a stable of Trojan horses? <laughs> you know, how, how does it all play out? But um, yeah, I, I don't know. What, you know, what do you think? Yeah, I, I think um, I, I think that's going to continue to be a struggle. And and another difference between home and, and industry is if there was a need for integration in an industrial product, standards tend to emerge, and then vendors start to eventually support 
these standards. And so then you get compatibility and kind of a plug-and-play model. And we're not really seeing that um, in, in the home. What we're seeing is really three very competitive ecosystems with each their own standards. And then so if you're a device manufacturer, if you make smart light switches, you are kind of forced to implement all three competing standards. And I actually right. don't think that's sustainable long-term. I think we're going to have to eventually as an industry say, here is the hub-to-device standard in the home. I don't think you're wrong. I don't think you're wrong at all. It's uh, uh, so many people, I mean, you know, I occasionally work with a lot of VCs here on the East Coast, and so many firms are, are pitching VCs that I'm going to be the, you know, Fitbit of this smart appliance or this whatever, and I just haven't seen a lot of uptake or traction. And I think it, it's right. I think you're exactly right. I think it's the splintering. But, you know, with respect to standards, you know, what are you seeing uh, on the enterprise and the industrial market as, as the standard or standards to emerge, or are there any from your from your standpoint? Well, so I don't, unlike the home, I don't think in industry it's going to be a single standard. I think in the industry um, it's going to be per domain. So, like, take something, uh, take medical imaging, right? You make mm-hmm. uh, you make endoscopic cameras or you make X-ray machines. There's a, there's a standard that's been around a while called DICOM. And, and that standard at least tells us how to transmit those images from a capture device to an uh, image storage location, right? And th- I'm not saying these standards are great. What I'm saying is the fact that they exist does enable a more kind of cooperation-type model um, <laughs> as opposed to just sort of um, – as opposed to sort of this l- try to lock out the other guy competitive model we see in the home. Right. Uh, where – if you were – if you were running the standards bodies, or if you were the standards body, what standards would you want to bring in, and, and, and where, at what level, you know, where in the stack? Yeah, I think the standard for home that's missing is how um, the hub devices, the devices that have user interface, whether it be a voice user interface or a TV screen interface or a mobile phone interface, the way those sort of user interaction devices and hubs communicate with individual devices. So if I have a light and a pool pump and a thermostat, those things are, in my mind, the end devices that control something in my home. Then you've right. got you know, Alexa and, and um, Siri and HomeKit-based products, and then you've got you know, Google Home. And I, want, I would ideally want the protocols between the first set of devices I mentioned and the second set of devices I mentioned to be standardized so that as a device vendor, I can support that one standard and be compatible with all current and future hub products. Mm-hmm. How about on the enterprise side? What would you, what oh, would you be looking for? That's, that's a little bit tougher. Uh, on, the, on the enterprise side, um, if you look into, um, you know, I think on the enterprise side, I'd take a different approach. I would take an approach on the enterprise side of open APIs. And so I would want to make sure that different product vendors that are coming to the table are not taking a data silo approach. You know, data has gravity, we say, so everybody wants to be the, the person who owns and controls the data. But to build these complex, multi-vendor industrial solutions, what we need are clearly defined open APIs. I think it'll be a, a tougher ask to, to expect a single standard, like I'm proposing for the home. I also think it's not nearly as necessary because, again, you get these, you get these much smaller, much, well, much more well-defined ecosystems um, you don't need every industrial device to talk to every other industrial device. Well, also, I, I, you know, kind of leading from that point, I think you're right, by the way, 
um, the more standard something is, the more standardized it is, uh, you start to have security issues that actually, I think, emanate from that. Whereas in the, and I've been involved in the telco side, as I've mentioned, and I've seen, I don't know, the, the, the place I was at for a number of years has uh, 60 some odd million things lit up on the network right now. It's a big telco. Um, and there's a fair amount of security through obscurity. There's inherent security in, you know, the SIM card uh, and being, you know, separate MZ ranges and separate network segments. And, you know, there, there's a, a fair amount baked in. And, you know, all the telcos operate a managed service uh, for IoT for the most part. But um, the more you – and this is, a, this is a theory. I'm not sure if it's accurate. But the theory is the more you – more everybody adheres to the same three standards for data and connectivity and this and that – um, there's an, a, a greater chance of security issues. Am I wrong? Am I right? Am I totally uh, without basis? <laughs> you know, um, I, could, I could see that going both ways, though. So a standard does mean that if there is a vulnerability in the standard, that it's going to affect everybody. So there's that risk. But okay. a standard also means there are more people looking at the problem. And so... Uh, what, it's more likely that a security vulnerability gets discovered by the good guys than the bad guys if there is a standard that's widely adopted versus if it's sort of these one-off um, proprietary protocols, then there's probably not a lot of security researchers looking at that. And so it's more likely that somebody who's trying to cause a problem is the only person uh, investigating the security surface area. I will say with your carrier example and the carrier managed services, this is back to that example of... of um, Everybody trying to own a bit too much, in my opinion. So <laughs> carriers want not only to own the transport, but they want to own the application layer, too. They want you to you, you know, communicate with their message brokers. They want to route messages for you. All this stuff sounds really positive, like in a marketing slick. But in reality, I think especially industrial and commercial customers are better served if each player plays their part. So for carriers, all we want of them is moving bits around, right? right. And we want to be able to pick... Exactly, and we want to pick the best of breed sort of application and platform vendors based on what we're trying to do. And, and um, you know, you're an old telco guy, so you know that, that in the past, telcos had a lot of problems with bundling and then unbundling and competitiveness, and I think this yeah, could accidentally yeah. go that way. Fair point, fair point. Uh, and, I, you know, I, having been inside a lot of the world's largest operators, they, you know, they want to go up the stack, you know, which is – you know the the nice way of saying what you wanted, which is a nice way of saying what you just said around you know having more control of the application layer and, and all that. But they want to offer more services because in the connectivity world, that's a declining business in terms of margin. Every year, it's cheaper and cheaper to push bits over the pipe. It becomes more and more competitive in regulatory stuff, in, in particular in Europe uh, and, and other uh, regions. You know, keeps the pricing uh, reasonable. Uh, the reason they also like IoT is that um, IoT, for the most part, is a you know you you bake it in the uh, you bake connectivity into the into the widget. The widget gets installed somewhere up up a pole, down a hole, you know, on a thing, and it doesn't move for seven to ten or twelve years. So um, uh, you know, there's a number of reasons why they really like the IoT business, even though it's a river of pennies and, and nickels and dollars. Um, yeah, we get in. We get into really interesting, you know, sort of net neutrality problems, right? You, obviously, yes. most of your listeners have probably been following this at some level or another. And 
And as carriers desire to move up the stack, as, as you said, um, there's temptation also to favor their own application platforms over their competitors. That's a natural instinct. But for somebody who's serving as kind of a common carrier, that's, of which is only a few, um, that's really dangerous, I think, for the industry. So, the, you know, again, that, that actually brings us back to Annika's role. So Annika's role would be to come in and say, all right, we'll, help, we'll stand in the middle. We'll prime it for you. And I'm not trying to put words in your mouth. So we'll help you with connectivity, whatever the flavor is. We don't care. Um, we'll help you with, you know, whatever cloud. We'll help you with whatever predictive prescriptive maintenance, whatever it is, what other, you know, analytics platforms, whatever it is that you want, we'll sew that quilt together. Is that, is that an accurate statement? Yeah, the beauty is that we're not a, we're not a platform vendor, right? So we're not um, – when the product is done, there is no recurring revenue stream that we're going to capture as part of that. So we have no incentive to push you towards one tool or the other. We want to be the neutral third party that helps pick the best in breed connectivity, application platforms, whatever the needs are. And sometimes that's Cell, sometimes that's LoRa, sometimes that's Sigfox. It's whatever is right for that application. Will you talk them out of something that if you think it's vehemently, if you vehemently think it's awful? Yeah, I mean, uh, we will certainly um, help customers understand uh, and compare the risks and, and benefits of the different approaches. I think I mentioned pretty sort of pretty uh, plainly in the in the panel that I right. think long term LTE is going to win, like LTE in all of its flavors, right? Um, is going to win the connectivity challenge because it's got the reach and the breadth and the reliability that you know. Whereas deploying, say, LoRa gateways is going to continue to be challenging, um, but but having said that, no, agree. There, there's applications where that doesn't make sense, and we'd explore something else. But I think we're maybe oriented towards LTE as the as the most generic solution. Yeah. Anytime you're in the licensed spectrum world, and the again, uh, holding aside my my obvious uh, uh, love for the telcos, um, <laughs> it's, it's really a sad statement. But. Um, Anytime you have licensed spectrum, and I know there was a gentleman in the audience that was very eager to talk about LoRaWAN and how it was baked into Comcast gateways, and that got my attention. I'm like, oh, okay. But um, anytime you've got you know, 20, 30, $80 billion companies who deal with the spectrum issues, the regulatory issues, oh, by the way, they'll put up all these towers all over the place. Oh, by the way, they'll make sure that any place your device goes in the world, 192 countries, 600 operators, whatever it is, that that thing will work, and they'll handle all the all the you know uh, clearance, negotiation, the pricing. The, that will they charge you for it? You bet. But they'll handle all that, so you don't have to worry about it. Uh, and they'll be there in five and ten years when the device is ready to get uh, upgraded or, or changed out. Whereas you know my concern, and I've seen some of the you know emerging lower power standards kind of go through their um, or, low, or lower power uh, offerings go through all of their various uh, growing pains, and the, the, the problem is if if one of those companies ain't there, what are you going to do when you have to send someone out to the oil rig, and you know totally replumb the the solution? That's always the risk, I think. Yeah, I think I think it's really unlikely, and you know maybe I'll eat my words on this in the future, but I think it's really unlikely that we're going to see a worldwide LoRa network that's compatible and has the same sort of roaming capability that you mentioned that we have in the cell network. And so the reality is that LoRa becomes very location-bound. Like if you're going to deploy 100 devices in a small area, then sure, you deploy your own gateways as well. And so for that private network model, similar right. to how it works, 
it's totally fine. And it may be better than Wi-Fi from a power profile point of view for a lot of use cases. But mm-hmm. when you're looking for devices that are meant to be in the wild, not within a defined geography, um, I, I, just, I, th- I think the idea that you're going to have ubiquitous connectivity outside of cell or, or satellite, I suppose, is, is pretty challenging. Well, so I did, I did a, uh, an interesting, for our New York, uh, for our Amazon uh, uh, thing in New York, I did an interesting podcast with uh, the CMO of FreeWave. And again, you know, I always announce my prejudices. You know, I'm a, I'm a telco guy. Help me understand why this non-standard stuff is relevant. And he actually opened my eyes. So kind of the use case you just mapped out, you know, you're out in the wild. You, you know, you've got, you know, uh, self-contained um, set up whether, you know, he, he talked about some interesting deployments around border security in uh, southern Europe where, you know, they just want to monitor the border. They're not going to be within cell range. They don't need standard networks, and it's just, you know, X number of sensors on, on, on a fence and on a guard tower. Uh, or, you know, again, oil, oil, you know, rig out in the middle of nowhere where you just want to know if the thing is leaking or not. Um, in that setting, you know, what, what they would say is you really don't, first of all, the cell networks won't be out there. Second of all, you know, instead of having a recurring cost, even a dollar a month, this is zero a month. So yeah, something so, to be set for it, I guess. And it's, it's back to what I said, right? It's a defined geography. So for customers that, right. are, that say, look, we are only targeting a, a given area or a given set of areas, I think it's very realistic, especially if they deploy their own gateways. But for someone who's saying, this is a device that I want consumers to wear on their wrist and they work everywhere, um, you know, that's, that's a very, very tall order to expect connectivity in any fashion other than cell in that model. Yeah, no, I agree. And, and it, Wi-Fi didn't ever really roll out with great ubiquity, public Wi-Fi with, you know, from a secure standpoint. And, I mean, you know, I, I live in the Boston area and we're Comcast customers and, uh, you know, you, we have this Compact, Comcast app on the, on the iPhones and, you know, it's, it's not ubiquitous. And I'm not slighting Comcast. I, I think they do as good of a job as they can. It's just very difficult to roll out, you know, uh, Wi-Fi that hands off the way a cell network would. At least yeah, you at know this what, point. Yeah, you know what made, I think, public Wi-Fi really challenging? Um, take, take someone like Starbucks. They have free Wi-Fi pretty much everywhere. Right. But, um, but they all have the, the sort of paywall. Even though it's free, they have that sort of pop-up you have to go through and accept terms and conditions. Well, that mm-hmm. whole workflow is inherently incompatible with an IoT device because IoT devices don't have web browsers and UIs in many cases. And so we don't really see truly public open Wi-Fi in most places. Even the ones that cities put into airports or into civic areas, they're not really open from the technology sense. You still have to click through something, and that makes them totally inaccessible to IoT devices. Uh, you make a good point. And, you know, I've always said that, you know, IoT is just a different animal. It's not, you know, if you have web skills, you know, they don't necessarily transfer directly over to IoT, or as I used to call it, M2M. So I think it's a, it's, a, it's a different beast, and I think you see a lot of IT sort of habits trying to bleed over into IoT, you know, product development and marketing and even uh, customer assumptions or, or the analysts get confused. If you read the, even you know, the popular financial press, Forbes, I always think that they really don't understand what IoT is. They, um, you know, they, they conflate and confuse um, yeah, I mean, you know. let's, let's try to define it, actually, because I, I've been using a definition. I'm curious about your take, um, because I don't think there is a clear definition. In my mind, an IoT device is um, less powerful than your cell phone, 
Yep. I think that's the, like, I've been using that. If I could just simplify it to one factor, I've been using that. Uh, cell phones are not IoT devices. Uh, I agree. So, so I think we have to look at devices that are less powerful, either in terms of battery or CPU, or less powerful in terms of, like, their interfaces. They tend not to have nice touch screens, right? Like, they're, they're more embedded than that. So I'll, I'll give you my swag, and actually this is uh, – so I, I probably mentioned in, in you know, the presentation that, that uh, we were part of. So in addition to you know, doing podcasts and you know, working with uh, uh, companies as an as a IoT consultant and strategy guy, um, I'm also the chair of the MIT Connected Things Group, um, which runs out of the uh, MIT Media Lab, and we host an annual conference. After the call, I'll make sure you get all the info and would love to have you participate, but we, you know, we won't waste the, uh, the listeners' time on that now. But, so first of all, the term Internet of Things emerged from the MIT Media Lab 1999. A gentleman named Kevin Ashton was actually researching um, and actually just gave a very interesting talk that I listened to uh, uh, or an interview. But he was uh, a Procter & Gamble guy, and he was researching uh, consumer goods, and um, he kind of jammed the name on the front page of a PowerPoint presentation. Uh, and he was really describing initially sort of the notion of putting RFID chips on consumer goods in order to track them. And then the term Internet of Things or, or IoT kind of stuck. Um, I come out of the M2M, machine-to-machine world, where, or SCADA was you know, the other old world, the, uh, old term. But uh, the term IoT now has subsumed all the other operating terms, you know, the M2Ms and the, all that. Um, but the way I define it is putting a sensor on a thing and connecting it to a network in order to manage, control, uh, or analyze data coming from it. I think it's a very simple way to phrase it. That way you're not getting to a comparative statement of it's not like your cell phone. Although, again, the Kevin Ashton guy who came up with the term said that your cell phone is an IoT device in that it contains uh, accelerometers and gyros and sensors and all sorts of things. And where I would push back on him, with all due respect, is that uh, a $900 iPhone is really not representative of the IoT devices you see in nature. They're you know, cheap. They go on a pump or a, uh, an air conditioner or on a car, and they're, they're you know, there to make sure that if the thing you know, if the thing is leaking, it sends an alarm, or if the lights are out, it lets you know, or, you know, if the, if the thing's vibrating too much, you're able to assess why it's vibrating. So I, I tend yeah, to, be, you know, simplify it. Yeah, let's be honest. Your cell phone is, is closer to a computer than it is to an iOS device, right? I agree. In fact, just look at the OS your cell phone runs. It's, it's essentially an a OS that you would run on your laptop or, very, or rooted in the same, same base. And so... Um, yes. Totally agree with your definition. I actually, I actually like that a lot. Um, I'll let you use it uh, without any royalties. Perfect. <laughs> yeah, it's a sensor on a thing connected to a network in order to do something with that device. Simplifies it. Because it, it doesn't imply a UI. It doesn't imply a, a comparative statement. Um, and it doesn't even imply a specific network. But I, I, the other thing, and you know, I get into these little nerd hissy fits with my MIT buddies on uh, RFID as part of the IoT framework, and I, I kind of have left it behind. You know, I refer to them pejoratively as clothing tags. I know that they're important and they're part of part of the ecosystem. But to me, if I can't individually address it as part of sort of this new R, new IoT framework, 
then I don't really care about it. It becomes less relevant. If I can't so I, get the third pair of jeans down in the stack, it, it, it doesn't matter to me. Yeah, you know what's really cool? We, we've had this conversation with a really large enterprise customer about um, whether or not they would integrate their RFID-based uh, assets into a larger IoT platform. And I think the solution that I've, I've uh, preferred is the RFID readers are IoT devices. And what they're sensing is the existence or distance of RFID tags near them. So the sensor is really the, the reader in that case. I would actually agree with that. that, that it's a gateway for, for passive devices. I mean, if it's passive, I can't address it. I, I can't reach out and say, let me see the condition of you know, the, the, the shirt that's three down on the stack. So I, I kind of like that. I like your definition. Yeah, we can both adopt each other's definitions now. Perfect. If you had a, take a, like a, a infrared camera, right, you would, you would say the camera is the sensor, you would not say the people that the camera can see is the sensor. This is the same thing. The RFID reader is the sensor, not the things it's reading. I like that. That, that, that actually clarifies it a bit, too. I like that. But these are, these are the kind of conversations that, you know, when you get to the uh, C-level, the C-suite, and, or the EVP, SVP level, a lot of folks are really unclear. I mean, I, I often, you know, when I do these public pre- presentations, I often say, you know, uh, over the last several years, there have been probably CEO board calls, you know, quarterly board calls with their board, and uh, some board member will read a, an article in Barron's or Forbes or whatever and say, hey, so how are we doing with this IoT stuff? Are, are, how are we doing with it? Are we, are we doing anything? And I always envision that the, uh, the, the CEO puts the polycom or the speakerphone on, on mute and goes, what's an IoT? <laughs> and then the second question is, are we the leaders or not? And then goes off mute and says to the board, "We're going to be the leaders by next quarter." <laughs> that's that, that's probably happening in boardrooms all across the country today. <laughs> and, and which I actually kind of gets me to the next buzzword, playing buzzword bingo. I think we kind of talked a little bit about this on our panel. So the next buzzword that's up there on the hype curve is blockchain, and um, I think we may have bumped into that a little bit, but. So I'm running a study this summer at Tufts University, which I'm happy to make available to you later. Uh, it'll conclude after Labor Day. On the intersection of IoT and blockchain, we had a, a panel at the um, Connected Things Conference I had this year where it was kind of a point-counterpoint on that very topic. What's your view of the applicability of, of blockchain in the IoT uh, ecosystem, if any? Yeah, so I, I have, a, I have a, an opinion on this that, that people may not agree with, but so, so the the purpose of blockchain is this distributed trust, right? Like you don't trust anybody, so you come to a consensus in this distributed model. And that has a lot of value for certain applications. But if I'm an IoT device vendor and I'm making, say, something as simple as a connected light, I, um, I really would rather that connected light connect to my infrastructure. I don't have a distributed trust problem on my hands. And so I, I don't know why as a vendor of IoT products, you would, de- you would willingly decentralize your own role. You're like disintermediating yourself, which is an, a, an odd position to take. And so the places where it might make sense is if there was for some reason a worldwide network of temperature sensors, right, and you wanted just this kind of public, open, free service where everybody could contribute to a worldwide network of temperature readings, then you could see where blockchain could store those temperature values and you could have sensors that are close enough in geography so that you could figure out who, you know, who's telling the truth and nobody could poison the temperature data with fake results. But that, that's like a pretty wild and out-of-the-norm use case. 
for your yeah. everyday use case about uh, controlling devices, measuring, uh, especially industrial devices, you know, like why would you want to distribute the trust over the status of your uh, your industrial device? So I struggle to see the, the relationship, but I understand that there's a lot of people that, that do see the relationship. Well, there's a lot of hype in it. And again, I, I start out skeptical in many things, and I like to go gather data. Um, so hence, uh, you know, uh, having a bunch of grad students scratch away at use cases. They actually have come up with a few use cases. I'm also trying to get them to come up with any real deployments. And I have them talking to you know, big vendors, you know, SAP, IBM, all those guys. So uh, as I said, in a few weeks or a little over a month, we ought to have a, at least a, a first cut, and I'll probably do a podcast on it and maybe invite you back. We can go through the results, and you can, you can, uh, can dispute it. Yeah, you can <laughs> react. I tend to agree with you. I don't personally see the use case. I just think, you know, uh, IoT is difficult enough for people to understand, let alone implement, um, that adding another element, it's like two, tying two stones together, they'll just sink faster. Um, and, and also, the blockchain, you know, implementing blockchain means that you have a payload. Uh, there's an energy use aspect to it that, that, you know, for IoT devices, some of which are 30 cents, who cares? I, you know, right. but so that, that anyway, I, I wanted to get your view because I, I knew you. I knew you had one, so it was good to get. <laughs> it was good to get it out there. Yeah, I'll be um, interested to hear the results <laughs> of the study, and and I can be I can be wrong. That that'll be all right. Look, that's why we. That's why I do these podcasts. I mean, it's all about innovating, and and the part of uh, innovating in the IoT sphere is is trying stuff. Uh, I, I like real world, so I want. I always want to know about a deployment. Uh, I always like to highlight them in the conferences that I either moderate or, or participate in, which kind of leads me to the next one. So March 25th of next year at MIT, we're hosting the next Connected Things. The topic will be called uh, uh, Bleeding Edge of IoT. So I don't know if you have any IoT deployments that are wild and wacky that, that you'd like to talk about now. I didn't prepare you for this. Uh, oh, you may wow. not have any. But uh, if not, certainly for that conference in March, be interesting to have you highlight an interesting use case. But let me just kind of throw it out there. Do you have anything that's just really way out there on the bleeding edge? So I think that, I think that we do. Uh, one of the challenges being a consulting provider in this space is that until the products we're working on launch, we're typically not able to talk about them. And so I think by the time we get to that conference, um, I'll, I'll bring, with you, so bring with me some sample wacky things that are in progress today. As of right now, we don't have any customers that have publicly revealed those wacky uh, solutions. Can, can you go, like, make it as generic as possible? You know, I don't care what the industry or the customer is, but, or, you know, really make it as anonymous as you think you can, but what is, the, what is that thing that you're trying to do that's way out there? Well, I think, okay, so the, there, as, I, as I survey our sort of current project portfolio, the thing that keeps coming up um, has to do with extremely long battery life. So, Customers are building devices today that need to last 10 years on a single battery. So they're essentially not rechargeable. They're, they're sort of you use them for 10 years and you, you throw them away and get a new one. Right. And in today's technology landscape, this is not an easy problem. And so you end up with some pretty creative solutions, um, maybe even you know, doing things that are kinetic or, or some other alternative Lots energy. Lots of hamsters. I, I see where this is going. It's, yeah. it's going to involve hamsters and spinning wheels. <laughs> I mean, like in some cases, right? So, so I think we're gonna if we're gonna see whatever kind of whatever creative solutions we have to come up with to extend battery lives into the decades. Okay, 
I like that because I think battery is, battery is a huge issue. And, you know, I, I mean, I always obsess over connectivity or networking, but, you know, how long this thing is going to last and, and how you're going to keep the thing powered, you know, these are, these are really, really big deals. I mean, this is, you know, especially stuff that lives in the field out in the middle of nowhere, which is where a lot of IoT devices li- uh, live. Yeah, but connectivity right. versus battery is, is the challenge of our, uh, you know, so of the next couple of years. I think you're right. So I, I think as we kind of come to the end of the journey, I wanted to kind of see, you know, I mentioned before that, you know, I look at your website and you've got a, a hundred zillion uh, awards. You know, again, congratulations. That's, that's great. And certifications. So the one question is, is there an award or a, a group that you look to, like if it has the good housekeeping seal of approval for IoT? Is there, you know, a lot of people look at Gartner. Is it in the upper right, you know, or... What are the what are the resources or the awards that you look to or that you would share with your customer? Uh, uh, you know, that's the kind of the equivalent of the good housekeeping seal of approval. Yeah, that's interesting. So, so we do have a number of awards across different parts of our business. I think when it comes to IoT today, we're mostly leveraging our AWS credentials in the space. So, the the fact that we're a premier consulting partner with the IoT competency. The fact that we're one of the few, if not the only, that's got a hardware um, practice associated with that. Okay. Um, going, so going you use forward, the vendor certs. In, in this case, in this space, I think we are. Um, I don't know that. Frankly, when you're a consulting provider, the thing that m- means the most to customers is what have you done for a pre- previous customer. So our best credential are case studies that that we've published. Fair enough. It, 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 they always say in the in the in the customer world, you know, get a reference. Exactly, right? You know, that's, uh, all right. So I, I think, let, why don't I leave you with one sort of, you know, crystal ball question. What do you see sort of in the near and long term in terms of innovative things happening from an IoT perspective? What, uh, you know, either what do you, what do you see or what do you hope to see? And we'll kind of close after that. Um, I think I hope to see this connect this low power cell based connectivity really um, be real so cat m1 having modems available having carriers have friendly business models so that deploying those solutions is not a major a major commitment right the end state i'd like right. to see is i can sign up online get a thousand sims and deploy my poc on on a cat m1 network and because uh, connectivity i think is still the biggest challenge okay well, fair enough fair enough Tolga, I really appreciate you doing this. Um, I hope the listeners benefited as, uh, uh, as I think I did. Um, you know, these are very important topics, and I think uh, you know there, there's a, a clothing company up here in the Northeast where they say the educated and educated consumers are best customer. But um, just to paraphrase it, but I think the more people know, the the more they're able to make informed decisions. And IoT is really it's 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 not easy. You have to know what the hell you're doing. So I commend you on having a, a full suite of offerings. Uh, I commend you on the Iotanium board, which um, I wouldn't mind to see at some point and, and get my hands on and play with. But um, I, I think you guys are doing a great job. So um, again, I really appreciate your time today. Great. Thanks for having me on. Thank you.